Your passports, please. Enjoy your trip. This is Bourbon Abroad. Around the world, one pour at a time. It's that brown water, man. It's, it's the juice. <laughs> the elixir of life. There is good bourbon to be found while abroad. Welcome to Bourbon Abroad, the podcast that travels the world one pour at a time. I'm Shane. And I'm Mike. And we are so glad that you could join us today as we head finally to Rome, the eternal city. We know we promised you this episode a a while back, and we made some detours, hopefully interesting detours to Barcelona. But we're going to wrap up our trip to Italy and check out some of the cocktail and bourbon scene to be found in the ancient capital of Rome. So, Mike, what was it about Rome that made you want to visit? I really love history. Just kind of being able to experience that part of the world and the historical aspect of of a city that is thousands of years old. Being able to walk the same streets as some of these historical titans, Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, the Apostle Paul. You know, these guys changed the scene of history to be able to be in the same spot that they were. It was just mind-blowing, you know, kind of awe-inspiring, seeing the Colosseum, just seeing all this stuff like, you know, you see it in pictures and movies, and then to actually see it in person is just surreal. I would agree. You talk about cities in Europe routinely older than anything that we have here in the United States, but then you talk about Rome. <laughs> and, and that's a city, like you mentioned, the history, the things that happened there the people who walk those streets to stroll through the forum and to wonder, you know, whose footsteps you're following that day. And it's not just the the ancient Roman history, but Rome is one of those cities that built on top of itself century after century after century that was sacked numerous times by all kinds of different enemies of Rome. And yet it always rebuilt. It always came back. You can see the scars and, and you can see the skeleton of, of the ancient world, but it's a, it's a modern city all yeah, on top is. of that. <clears throat> we had a, one of our, we did like a, a wine tour and our guide told us that the city of Rome is like a lasagna. You know, it's just like all the <laughs> yes. layers or they just, you know, and every time a new Caesar or a new government would come into power, they would raise everything and build a new on top of the. So there's a couple of different places within the city where you can see down the layers, you know, where they haven't, mm-hmm. you know, built over everything or they've excavated it. And you can count the centuries, mm-hmm. the time that has passed by looking at these different levels. The street level now, the modern street level is about 35 feet above where the ancient street level used to be, and it's really cool. For those who haven't been to Rome, how would you explain the layout of the city? The city layout is very reminiscent of most European cities. I would be willing to bet that a lot of European cities base their layout off of Rome, seeing as Rome's been around so long. The Tiber River runs through the center, runs north and south, snakes through the center, dividing the city into two halves. The west side of the river is where the most iconic tourist attractions are located, Colosseum, the Roman Forum. Trevi Fountain, the Spanish Steps, the Pantheon, all that stuff's all on the one side. And then the eastern side of the river is where you have Vatican City. There's a couple other neighborhoods, really cool neighborhoods over there. There's one called Trastevere, and it's a foodie neighborhood. I mean, it's just restaurants and bars and 
it's a great, great neighborhood over there. One of our favorite little spots that we found is over there. But at the heart of the city sits the ancient Roman ruins. Got the Colosseum and then stretched out before it is the Roman Forum, kind of overlooked by Palatine Hill, which is where the Caesars all had their palace, you know, kind of overlooking. The Roman Forum was the economic and, and political thoroughfare, right? So they yeah. had their little perch, you know, where they could kind of see all the goings on. They didn't have far to travel to go to the Senate. Everything was kind of right there. And then Coliseum's right there too. So for the games, you know, if they didn't attend, they could still, I'm sure, hear the roar of the crowd. And and they, you know, they always kind of kept their thumb on the pulse of the city. What did you think of the Coliseum? We're so used to going to sporting arenas. And with all apologies to Keith Jackson, really the Coliseum is the granddaddy of them all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it blew me away. I had no idea that it was going to be as big as it was. Mm-hmm. Three or four stories tall is what I'm envisioning in my mind. You know, and I thought it held 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. And then I get there and see this thing and, it, and it's four or five levels, but each level is 15 or 20 feet. Yeah. So, I mean, this thing is like 70 feet high plus underground, just three or four levels underground. And it sat 60,000 people. I mean, yeah. it, it is the equivalent of, of the modern day arena. I mean, basketball arenas don't even hold that much. The football stadiums might hold 70 or 80. Yeah. You know? modern day football field wouldn't fit inside the Coliseum, but it was very impressive how big it was. Yeah. And and the fact that what we see there are just really the bones of it. Yeah. Because there was a canopy. Mm -hmm. I mean, to to think about what that would have looked like when it was an operation packed full of people, you had all the trap doors in the floor. Yep. They flooded it so that they could do sea battles on it. Yeah, man. (laughs) It's really wild, <laughs> wild stuff. So what were some of the other landmarks that you were able to see besides the Forum and the Coliseum? The Pantheon, that place is really cool. It's it's one of the oldest churches in the world. And it's very cool the way that it's built. It was surprising at how big it was as well, because mm-hmm. it's it's kind of built down in a bowl. So the rest of the city is up level with the roof line. But then as you walk towards it, by the time you get to the foundation of the Pantheon, you're standing ground level. And then you realize like, oh, my gosh, this thing is huge. I want to say it's like the first domed structure. The whole design of that building is unique because when you go inside, it's not just a dome, Mm -hmm. but it has a hole in the middle. It has the oculus. Yeah. And the way that they were able to build that out of concrete. We think of concrete now as kind of like, ah, well, it's concrete and, you know, it's what you use for bridges and roads and ugly buildings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I but think of Romans, concrete buildings, I think of uh, like communism, just these square, gray, ugly looking. Yeah. <laughs> very, very dour, gray yep. buildings. Yep. But the Romans, they were masters of it. And so to have a dome that large open at the center and, and the way it's poured so that as it gets closer to the top it gets gets thinner thinner right? yeah thinner and lighter so I there's mean, less weight and yet when you go in there that's not what hits you at first what hits you at first is that shaft of light coming into this dark space yeah because it's it, really dark in there and you have to imagine what it was like I mean, it's a church now but when the romans built it it was a temple to all the gods so you imagine all of these gods like placed in those niches around the interior and what that would have been like 
incense floating in the air and this shaft of light coming through it beaming down it, through that yeah it would have been a a mystical place i mean it's still awe-inspiring when you go in there now and if you know a little bit about the construction of the building it's really awe-inspiring you're like wow how'd they pull this off all the way you know back then and shane yeah, columns like the columns yes. that support the porch yeah i mean those things are like 12 feet in diameter solid marble you know and it's like about 12 or 15 feet you know each section is like 12 or 15 feet and they've like stacked it mm-hmm. you know so it's like four or five sections like dude i, I mean you're not gonna they had free labor they had free manual labor <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it's like how in the heck did they the, the the sheer weight of just one section of one of those columns man <laughs> has to be like two or three tons i mean it's just ridiculous definitely ridiculous what they pulled off you know back in those days (laughs) rome is a city of temples and churches but it's also famously a city of fountains oh man yeah (laughs) and so so talk a little bit about the fountains um where they appear what their purpose is and uh which ones you were able to see so a lot of the fountains, you know, are usually in a, in a piazza or a plaza, sometimes multiple fountains. They are spectacular. I mean, they're works of art, the sculpture, the, the stonework, just everything about it. Lots of mermaids and seahorses and, you know, <laughs> tridents and stuff like that. Probably the most famous, if not in the world, definitely in Rome is, is Trevi Fountain. Shane, I mean, you've been there, you've seen it. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And it's in such a small space. And it's got everything, seahorses and mermaids and mermen and tridents and Neptune. And, oh, yeah, it's awesome. Like big fish and sea monsters. And see, yeah. that, that thing is so cool, man. <laughs> it is very cool. Not to cut short just the, the awe and beauty of Trevi Fountain, but there were just so many. But one of the ones I really liked was in the Piazza Navona. Okay which is on the west side of the river where the river kind of curves towards the Vatican. There's a oblong oval, long oblong oval, the Piazza Navona. It has three fountains. So it has this big obelisk in the middle with a big fountain. And then at each end of the oval, it has a fountain. They're really cool too. And then that, that whole piazza and that side, that oval is lined with cafes so, I mean, they're just great places that people watch. So which neighborhoods did you stay in? Because I know you kind of moved around the city the week that you were there. Yeah. So we were only in the in Rome for eight days, so a little over a week. But we stayed in three different neighborhoods because we really wanted to get a feel for the different areas of the city. The first neighborhood we stayed in was called Monte. And we stayed at the Dharma Boutique Hotel. Monte is very centralized. It's only about a 10-minute walk from the Colosseum. It was very eclectic in its architectural style. It had these really narrow streets, back alleyways, packed with little mom and pop trattorias and gelaterias, little wine bars. Bar Monte was a cool spot. And cool little vintage boutique shops. And then the second area we stayed at was Parione, which was over by Piazza Navona. And there we stayed in a little Airbnb. And uh, also in that neighborhood in Perione is the Campo di Fiore, which is a big open air market. And then the third neighborhood that we stayed was Trevi. We stayed at a hotel called Hotel Barocco, which was a very cool boutique hotel, 15 or 20 rooms. You know, they had like six or eight people on staff. So it was like really good attention to detail. You mm-hmm. know, they took care of everything. They would make your dinner reservations, whatever 
whatever you needed. And the cool thing too about that neighborhood is that it butted up to or bordered the Campo Marzio neighborhood. Okay. Okay. Which is the primo shopping neighborhood. Italian shoes, Italian suits. Dude, Shane, it was it was amazing. You could, you could literally go broke there. <laughs> Not you, broke, you, but broke. <laughs> did you pick anything up? I'm like, yeah, no. I I I prefer to be able to travel. <laughs> you know, then to <laughs> but I will look really, really good going nowhere. I'd rather go places. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think this is probably a good place for us to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about the food. You're listening to Bourbon Abroad. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Bourbon Abroad. I'm Mike. And I'm Shane. And when we left off, we had talked about the Roman neighborhoods, some of the cultural sites, the historic sites. But now I want to talk about food. Anywhere you go in in Italy, the food is amazing. Here in the United States, we call it Italian food. We think all Italian food is the same, but it's not. You don't find a lasagna everywhere. You know, those types of things are very regional. And Rome obviously is no different. It has the four Roman pastas. They're all fantastic. As Americans, we're familiar with with some of them, but but probably not all of them. I wasn't familiar with all four. Okay. Uh like cacio e pepe. Right. You no, know, that's the this the cheese. Yep. And pepper sauce. Every Instagram influencer. Oh, the cacio pepe. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's really good. It is it's good. great. It's it is. simple. It's delicious. Yep. And I hate all those white girls who have glommed <laughs> onto it. I'm just going to say that. Oh, uh, I know. And you Maybe can say that because you're white. It. I can. I can. <laughs> and, you know, interestingly enough, you know, we have cacio pepe here and, and we use. Parmesan cheese. In Rome, they only use Picorino cheese. You're not going to get it with anything else. So it's Picorino, it's crushed black pepper, and the long noodle. The next one is carbonara, which again, we're familiar with. They use egg, cheese, again, Pecorino, and then guanciale. Here in the States, most people use bacon. Right. But guanciale is from the jowls, inside the jowls of the pig. Right. Man, it's it's so good. Around here, unless you get a whole hog butchered, you're going to be hard-pressed to get jowl meat. Never had it myself, but I've been told it's delicious. It's, it's like the best meat on the pig. As good as bacon is, now for me, bacon list number three on the list of pork meats because it's guanciale is number one, then, Ooh, okay. then the pork belly is number two, then bacon's number three. <laughs> What, 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 what about Hamon? Ah, uh, see, Shane, now you, why'd you go and do that? <laughs> okay, so that those four are all in the top three. <laughs> uh, and then the, the third of the, the four pastas is Alegrisha. So it's funny, they all kind of play off of each other, right? So they just have okay, like a slight yeah. little variation. So the Alegrisha is the cheese pepper so there's no egg but there's the pepper like the cacio pepe but then it also has the guanciale so it's the cheese the pepper and the guanciale the picorino cheese and then my personal favorite was the amatrachana okay which is a tomato base tomato sauce and then the picorino cheese and the guanciale so those are your four um roman staples like the the four roman pastas and and those four, if, if you just go to Rome and you only eat those four, you, you will not go wrong. 
So outside of the pasta, obviously, you know, pizza, right? Everyone talks about the pizza. Pizza's good everywhere. But in Rome, they have what's called pizza, which is like okay. the Roman pizza. Kind of think of like a deep dish, but not really deep. It's, it's really fluffy. The bread's like real soft and fluffy. It looks more like a flatbread, real thick, fluffy crust. Anywhere you get it in Rome, the pizza is really good. But if you want to get the best, you have to go to Banchi. I don't know if that name rings a bell does with it, you or not. Does it ring a bell with me now? Okay, so he was featured on their Netflix show, Chef's Table. Okay. And they, they did an episode, a pizza episode, and they showcased Banchi. Wow, dude. It's crazy how good it is. And the, the weird ingredients he uses, like chicken comb really? as one of the toppings, I was not... Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you over here eating pig jowl. I mean, what's a chicken comb? <laughs> Yeah, I was I wasn't feeling uh, adventurous enough to try the chicken comb, but I okay. did see it. You know, that, that, that's some of the stuff he does. And man, was it worth it! So, was the pincer the only thing that they had there? No. So, there's another thing that's very famous in Rome. It's called suppli. It's a fried carbonara, like a fried pasta ball. Ooh. In the suppli, a lot of times it's it's a carbonara sauce, but they use risotto. So it's the egg, the cheese, little bits of guanciale. And that's how they get it to all stick together. Then they mm-hmm. bread it, deep fry it. But Banchi is like, you know what? I'm going to take it to another level. So he does a fried spaghetti ball. Tomato sauce. It's probably not full pieces of spaghetti, but they're pretty long. They're three, four inches mm-hmm. long. All rolled up. I don't know how he does it. All rolled up, breaded, deep fried. It's this, <laughs> and dude, it is awesome. <laughs> That all sounds very good. Yeah, it was it good. Sounds, sounds like I could get myself into trouble there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With, yep. Without any uh, difficulty. What about wine? Really, Shane? Wine? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anywhere and everywhere, dude, on right. the wine. I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, that is one of those it's things. It's Italy, about, you know? It's right. like, <laughs> if wine wasn't invented there, they, they, they think it was. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, any places that stood out, so, knowing yes. that it is so omnipresent? I think I said earlier in the episode, we did a wine tour. We were not that familiar with Italian wines. We drink French wines. We really like French wines. It was a walking wine tour through Rome. And that was where we were introduced to the Trastevere neighborhood. Okay. Yeah. Across and the that, river. Yeah. Across the river. And there's these little Inotecas, which is like a wine mm-hmm. bar. I mean, they're all over the place. So we went to this, uh, we went to a couple of nice ones, but our absolute favorite one was called Enoteca Ferrera. It was like during aperitivo hour, which is usually like five to seven. If you ordered a glass of wine or like a Aperol spritz or Campari spritz, anything like that, they have like this little buffet where they have like little finger food sandwiches. And during that time period, as long as you order the one drink, you can keep going back up to this finger food buffet. That was up in the front. And then if you continued further back into the building. They had like a full-on restaurant. And at the little wine bar, where if you're sitting there, you can order anything off the restaurant's menu. So you don't have to sit in the restaurant. But it's cool. Did they have any specialties? They had this, I guess it was kind of like an appetizer. It was the fried black gnocchi. Okay. And Shane, it was unbelievable. So let's talk about the color. I imagine that's what the black refers to. I mean, is it colored with like squid ink or something or? So it's colored with charcoal. They like mix charcoal powder with the flour. The gnocchi is actually black. So it's almost like this fluffy little black pasta donut. And then they salt it. Oh, man. 
It was so good. It was one of the best things I've ever had there. And it, it, that in a Teca Ferreira, that's one of the reasons why it really sticks in our, has a spot in my heart is just because of that black fried gnocchi. <laughs> now, does the addition of the charcoal change the flavor any? Does it make it a little smoky or anything like that? It does. So it, it does add a little kind of like an earthier, but I mean, nothing overpowering, nothing super strong. The first time we had that, it was with, you know, on our little walking wine tour. And so we had it with like a sweet white wine. Our guide paired it. So you had the salty and then the, so she's mm-hmm. like, take, you know, take a sip of the wine first. Like, oh yeah, this is good. And Susan's like, ah, it's a little sweet for my taste. And she's like, okay, now try that gnocchi. And it was like a flavor explosion, mind blowing. Like what? <laughs> That's cool. Sounds good. I think it's time for another break. And then when we come back, I want to talk about the bourbon and cocktail scene in the Eternal City. This is Bourbon Abroad. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Bourbon Abroad. I'm Shane. And I'm Mike. Now, when we left off, we were talking about food. And let's get into the bar scene there in Rome. Where do you want to start, bourbon or cocktails? So we'll start cocktails. And, and for the most part, the general theme in Italy is they don't have a great bourbon scene. Okay. You'll find a little spot here, a little spot there, but it's just Europe is definitely behind as a whole on the whiskey and on the bourbon scene, but Italy is probably the furthest behind out of all of Europe. Okay. Just because they have their wine, they have their Aperol and Campari spritz. To get that that hard brown liquor is, is just, it is making inroads, but it's going to take some time. Okay. But some of the places that we found are definitely doing their part and helping to educate and bring bourbon into the forefront. So the first place we went is called Freni at Frizioni. And it's actually the number 33rd ranked bar on the 50 best bars list. So it's making a pretty good name for itself. Uh, and it was only about a half a block from the Enoteca Ferrera. It's in the uh, Trastevere neighborhood. It's a cocktail bar and it's in an old mechanic shop. And okay. so they kind of kept that theme. You know, they had like some steel drums up against the wall and, and they had workbenches along the walls and a big workbench down the middle where they would do kind of like the communal seating or whatever, where everyone can kind of sit around it. Their logo is like a wrench, two wrenches crossed over and all the wait staff, they're wearing the mechanic shirts, you know, okay. with their name badge on it or like, yeah. or just like t-shirts. It's not real formal, obviously at all. Just really having fun with that mechanic shop theme. But interestingly though, then it's mixed with these crystal chandeliers hanging from the ceiling and modern art on the walls. It was this weird eclectic mix. And then to top it all off, they got punk music playing, you know, like think the Ramones and the, like it, dude, it was, it was a cool place. Like it was pretty wild. They're number 33 on the 50 best bars list. They had a peanut butter and jelly old fashioned. Okay. Which How was that? Not my thing. Little sweet. Little sweet. I'm not a big peanut butter fan. I only like my peanut butter with jelly on bread. Or in a Reese peanut butter cup. That's yeah, just, that's me. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> Nothing against peanut butter, but for no. me, that's the only way I will, I will, I usually partake of peanut butter. Um, but, you know, I, I got the concept and, and, you know, a lot of people were ordering it, you know, mostly they, they, they've kind of stuck with the classics, but just kind of did like a spin off of them, you know, like different 
kind of flavored old fashions or a Manhattan that was using some alternative ingredients, stuff like that. Nothing like too extraordinary or real crazy, but the service was great. The presentation was great. Just a real fun, real fun spot in a, in a good location. Great location. Okay. Any other places? The next place we went is the Jerry Thomas Speakeasy. It's been on the 50 best bars list multiple times. It's Currently, it's ranked uh, number 50 in the top 500. It's down this back alley. I mean, it's a true speakeasy. Like you have to have a reservation. When you make your reservation, they email you the password. And then you go down this little alley and and it's a black door and it says Professor Jerry Thomas. And it's got, it looks like an apartment because it's got like all these buzzers with other names. And then you got to hit the right buzzer. And then they talk to you through the intercom, you know, and you got to give them the password. But once you get inside, dude, it's super cool. Dark red walls lined with whiskey filled shelves. They got this old mug shot of Frank Sinatra when he was like 22 or something like that. Okay. Velvet bar stools and just a real old school field, copper tin ceiling. The bartenders are wearing like the arm sleeve and the yeah. leather aprons. I mean, they're yeah. they're they're going full out into the speakeasy vibe. And well, and that's what you'd expect to call it the Jerry Thomas speakeasy. For those listeners who maybe kind of knew the cocktails, do you want to explain to them who Jerry Thomas was? I mean, Jerry Thomas is kind of who started it all, right? Like he's the the creator. He, he wrote the books. Yeah, he, he wrote, wrote the all. books. <laughs> He put so I, all the cocktail recipes on paper. He was the yep. first to, to, whether he created them or not, he, he gets credit for, for putting pen to paper. For a guy who lived from 1830 to 1885, he left a mark on cocktails like few others. I mean, there's a few others who did their part in preserving recipes, but Jerry Thomas, he worked in bars all over the United States and he left the record. Whether, like you said, he invented them or not, he preserved them. So yeah, I'd expect a very old school feel to any place called Jerry Thomas Speakeasy. It was definitely like Prohibition era, the way they dressed. You know, a couple of guys had the flat caps on and, you know, they were really, really did it up well. You know, small place. I think there were six stools at the bar. Okay. Yeah, and that's then, not very big. And then the rest of the, the Speakeasy sat maybe 15 or 20 tops. Very small crowd, very intimate. They had two bartenders and then two or three servers. And as an ode to Mr. Jerry Thomas himself, they only made the classics, but they made they made them all. I mean, did they do the smashes and the punches and some of those things? I mean, they said whatever, as long as it's a classic, if you want it, we'll make it. If you're going to limit yourself to doing just the classics, you better pull them off. I mean, were they pulling them off? They were pulling them off. In the speakeasy... You know, I was kind of like, ah, oh, let's see, what do I want to get? What do I want to get? The server was just like, what do you normally drink? And I said, well, you know, I drink Manhattan's old fashions. She's like, well, let me recommend a twist to you. It's called our ghost old fashioned. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'll just, we're going to make it. I'll bring it to you. And I'm like, all right, sounds cool. So she brings out this drink and it's clear. I mean, it looks like it's just a glass of gin or vodka with an ice cube in it, but it's got an orange peel stuck in it. And I'm looking at it. And she's just like, tell me what you think. So I pick it up. And first thing I do is I smell it and it smells exactly like an old fashioned. It's the bourbon. It's the Angostura bitters. It's the orange. It's, it's, it's all there. So then I sip it and it tastes just like an old fashioned. So here they, they clarified it. Basically they redistilled it to pull all the color out of the 
bourbon. They redistilled the Angostura bitters, pulled all the color out. That was super cool. That was, you know, the clarified cocktails are kind of picking up. Yes. yes you know, but, you know, this was approximately a year ago. So it was kind of still new on the scene at the time, you know, and I was just like, what is this? A ghost, a clear old fashioned. It was, it was pretty cool. Now, would you say that is better than a regular old fashioned or is it just the experience of drinking something clear that tastes like something very dark and familiar? It's just the experience. It doesn't change the flavor. It doesn't make it better. It doesn't make it a better tasting old fashioned, but it plays a trick on your mind. Your mind is telling you one thing, but your palate's telling you, nah, it's what you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> Our server, she was great. She made some good recommendations as far as just straight pours. And they had Pappy, the BTAC, William Leroux Weller. They had Japanese whiskey. They pretty much had anything that you would want. They might have not had some stuff, like if it was a unicorn you were looking for, but you're going to get something that you know, that you like, that's hard to come by in Europe. They had it. So if you're really looking for a good pour when you're in Rome. Yes. Jerry Thomas Speakeasy will hook you up. Okay. So I know there's another place that you went when you were in Rome. It's got kind of an interesting name, Drink Kong. Drink Kong. Tell me about yeah. Drink Kong. I, 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 know, I know this is a place that you really like. Oh, uh, yeah. Drink Kong was great. It was, a, it was, it was a, That was a lot of fun. Great experience. Number 21 on the 50 best bars. When we were there, they were actually number 10. Things change and, you know, a lot of moving parts and a lot of other bars trying to make a name for themselves. But number 21, I mean, that's, hey, that's pretty awesome. So cool place, awesome vibe, neon lights, kind of art deco, like Miami South Beach in the 80s. If this place would show up on an episode of Miami Vice, like you, you wouldn't be shocked at all. Uh, I was Crockett expecting, and I, yep, I was expecting to see Sonny Crockett. Trudy and <laughs> Gina come walking through. <laughs> Yeah. And it's also, um, you know, I have, I have yet to be to Tokyo, but it's kind of got like that, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, with the neon signage and stuff like that. It was a cool place. They got a real big bar right center when you walk in and then, you know, off to the left, they have some private tables. And then as you go around to the right, there was multiple little private rooms. We sat front and center, right in the middle of the bar, which turned out to be a great time. We met the bar manager, Livio. My boy Livio, man, he hooked us up. When we okay. sat down, he wasn't bartending. He was just kind of overseeing things and, and making sure everybody had what they needed. And I'm trying to like talk with the bartender. And I'm like, hey man, you know, what's going on? And they were just cranking out cocktails. So then I'd see Livio just hanging out. I start talking to him and then he starts making our cocktails and it was great. He pretty much took care of me and my wife the whole rest of the evening. What did they specialize in there? So they are definitely cutting edge experimental cocktails. All across the board, they had some tequila cocktails, some mezcal. They did gin, whiskey, scotch, Japanese, American. I mean, they kind of, they had a little bit of everything. A lot of ingredients that we just don't use here in the States, we're just not familiar with. Whenever I get in a kind of a situation like that, I look for something that is familiar and then see like, all right, is this, how how far outside of my comfort zone is this going to take me? Because it's using some things I'm not familiar with. I get a feel for like, okay, they know what they're doing. It's well-balanced. The drinks are good. I did one. It was like a Campari based drink, which was funny because it was clarified, very bitter. And they have the clear ice cube with the ice stamp of their logo, which is like a King Kong face, Mm -hmm. you know, and then they drip the Campari bitters into the ice stamp. So 
this clear drink with this red drink Kong, King Kong face sitting on top of the glass. It was pretty cool. Good presentation, really good drink. Had a good time there. And they have a pretty extensive whiskey list as well. Okay. You said they use some ingredients that we don't really see here in the States much. Uh, can you give any examples of that? For example, there was a, a drink that was a rum-based drink. It was Florida kind of 12-year rum, pineapple, radish cordial, Campari bitters, and then red ancho reyes. Some really weird things. Radish cordial. Like, I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> And there was a there's a, a tequila based drink, and it was coconut milk, tomato cordial, tomato liqueur. Yeah, that's weird. I've never seen that on a list of ingredients for a cocktail. And I think a lot of like their cordials were house made. They had a scotch based drink. They had plum in it and sage, sweet vermouth, disarano, a real weird kind of mix of things. And you, you try it, and you're, wow, this is fantastic. It, and it's one of those ones where each flavor is kind of unfolding yep. the more you sip it. Yes. And- As your palate kind of adjusts to that flavor, then you start picking up the nuances of the next flavor behind. And you're just like, oh, man. OK. All right. So it was it was cool. It was a good place. Great vibe. Great atmosphere. Great cocktails. That sounds cool. Now, price wise, Rome is a major city. How did the prices of, of the cocktails and even of the food compare to other places? You think, okay, I'm going to go to Rome, right? It's going to be expensive. It's not as expensive as you would think. Now, that doesn't mean you can't spend a lot of money because there right. are expensive places to be found, but you can have excellent meals, get great cocktails. You know, these places I went, these are all highly rated bars and I think Jerry Thomas was the most expensive of the three, okay. but the the Frini and Frizioni, you know, they're 12, 15 euros cocktail. Same with Drink Kong, 10 to 15 euros a cocktail. And Jerry Thomas, I think they had a couple of them that were pushing up into the 20 euro range. Probably less expensive than like a New York or Paris. You know, you've been to several places in Italy. Is Rome Rome your favorite location? Or? Rome is my favorite. I mean, they're okay. all fantastic, but... For me, for my likes and dislikes and kind of the vibe that I'm into, Rome is by far my favorite. Definitely deserves to be on anyone's travel list. You know, and also Shane, we, you know, we hit these three places that we just spoke about, but mm-hmm. there's so many more that we didn't talk about that I actually didn't get a chance to make it to. Okay. Um, so I think maybe on the website, we'll, we'll go ahead and list some of these other places that are on my list of two goes. My daughter and son-in-law were just there recently and they did go to a couple of the ones that I wasn't able to make it to. And I got glowing reviews from them. So we'll, we'll go ahead and put those on the list on the website for this episode. So they, you know, people can check it out if they're heading to Rome, you know, maybe they can go hit up a couple of these places and, and get back to us and let us know how they were. Even sounds like a reason to go back to the city. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it does. <laughs> Well, we want to thank you for joining us here on Bourbon Abroad. For Mike, I'm Shane. Join us next time as we travel the world one pour at a time. The Bourbon Abroad podcast is a production of Bourbon Abroad and Corduroy Coat Media.